This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our worship continues with the reading and study of God's Word. Let's open our ears and our hearts to hear what God has to say to us this morning. The first reading is taken from the book of Malachi, chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat any one's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toiled night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. But because we do not have authority, not because we have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort you through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Amen. Our gospel portion for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We will uh, honor an ancient Christian tradition. Please stand as we hear the good news from the teachings of the Messiah. The good news according to Luke. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see 
The days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And Father, we ask that uh, you would open the eyes of our heart uh, so that we could see. So that in this uh, difficult passage, passage that is complex and Lord, not easy to understand. We want to see your goodness, your faithfulness, and we want to see Jesus in the midst of this. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, be our teacher this evening. Come, Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray. For the sake of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Okay. Well, we... um, As many of you know... We find it very useful to follow a lectionary, not slavishly, but still follow the lectionary, um, because it does something um, very important, especially for those who are speaking, for those who are preaching, and for the congregation. Over a three-year period, we read through the entire Gospels, most of the epistles, um, many passages in the Hebrew Bible or the Old, the Old Testament. And uh, it forces you um, to confront passages that may not be very popular, passages that might be difficult. Hold on, Micah. Micah. Are we? Good. Um, passages that yeah, that preachers may not like, uh, may like not like to discuss, and in this overheated eschatological atmosphere of Jerusalem, where so many people 
uh, are virtually obsessed uh, with the second coming. People who are watching the signs, uh, scanning the internet, waiting for the arrival of the Antichrist, uh, whatever it may be. It's not always easy in Jerusalem to talk about this subject, but it is a part of the gospel message, and it is part of the teaching of Jesus. It's not the sum uh, total of his teaching. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, I don't think we should either, but uh, it still is something that we have to take uh, with great seriousness. Now, it's not so easy to talk about this passage in particular, or you might say the similar passages in Mark and in Matthew. Uh, in part, I don't, if, don't know if you've noticed, uh, the chronology is so diffi- diffi- difficult. Uh, it un- it's, doesn't seem to make chronological sense. It sort of weaves uh, in and out of uh, different passages. And over the um, centuries, especially since the Reformation, uh, many Bible commentators and students of prophecy, they've tried to make this passage, uh, they're sort of like, you know, lion tamers, you know, they're trying to, you know, take a whip and make that, uh, or training a cat almost, that would probably be a better analogy. You're trying to make that cat of yours, you know, do something that it doesn't want to do. So there's some folks who say, this is all about the past. It's all about the destruction of Jerusalem and the events that take place uh, around the book of Acts, the persecution, uh, the um, so on and so forth. And then you have another school of thought that says, no, this is going to happen in the future. Um, Jerusalem will once again be surrounded by armies. Jerusalem will be a trembling stone for all the nations. And what we read in Zechariah and Isaiah fits with the the, uh, passage that we read here. And then you have the symbolic folks, the folks who say, well, apocalyptic literature or literature such as this, uh, while it has some historicity, let's say, uh, it is largely uh, symbolic, and it's not to be taken literally. So what do you do with this? Yes, of course, you know, to use that old saying from Philadelphia, you have to fish or cut bait. You've, uh, you've got to make a decision, or do we, okay? Um, I actually think uh, that uh, Bob Lindsay who Robert Lindsay, who used to be the pastor of the Jerusalem Baptist Church many years ago. And he was a great scholar of the Gospels and a great scholar of Hebrew and Aramaic. And he spent his life studying the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, He even named his kids Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, that's dedication, is it not? He, um, He suggested, and I think it's probably the safest approach uh, to a passage like uh, we just read or this particular passage is that basically Jesus at three different times talked about three different subjects. He talked about the fall of Jerusalem, okay? He knew Jerusalem Jerusalem was in trouble. Uh, Yes, uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem 
And um, he comes to not only to die as the son of man, but he also comes to warn the city. He comes as a prophet. That's part of his, you might say, his job portfolio. And uh, Jesus isn't the prophet who kind of stands on the soapbox and gleefully, gleefully tells Jerusalem, you're going to get your just desserts. You know, God is angry with you, and I'm angry too, and you're going to be wiped out. He comes, yes, from Jericho, comes over the top of the Mount of Olives. He sees the city, and he weeps. He weeps because he loves his people. Yes, he not only weeps because he loves his people, because God loves the people. And a definition of a prophet One definition of a prophet. This was a great Jewish scholar, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He said that a prophet feels what God feels for any given situation. And of course, God is heartbroken because his people, his city, they're making a big mistake. They're going down the wrong road and they're going down that road, you know, uh, fast. And it's going to end in a disaster. And Jesus, by the way, even in his last breath, I mean, he's carrying the cross, he's going through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, and women start crying uh, because of what's being done to him. And Jesus, he doesn't turn to them and say, yeah, isn't it terrible what they're doing to me? Isn't it horrible? I mean, look at me, I'm an innocent, I'm an innocent, I'm a victim. Jesus says, if they do this to me, right, who is a green tree, what will happen to the dry tree? Yes, and Jesus is making a reference to uh, Ezekiel chapter 19, where God says he's going to bring judgment upon his people. And that judgment will start in the south, and it will burn up the, the wicked, the dry trees, but also the righteous will suffer along with the wicked. Because that's what often happens. In fact, those of you who are praying for judgment, you need to consider that. That not only will the wicked or those who are undeserving be judged, but the righteous will somehow be caught up. And Jesus says, "Don't weep for me, because what's going to happen to you is going to be much more terrible. Going to be much worse than what's happening to me." So, with his last ounce of strength. He's still expressing his love to to people and warning them. By the way, a few verses later, they're nailing, uh, putting nails into his hands and to his feet. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this is a, a, a love that Jesus has for his people. And it's always important that we don't separate Jesus and the people of Jerusalem or we don't separate him actually from the, uh, from the Jewish people. And Lindsay also, he uh, concluded that Jesus also gave a teaching about persecution and what persecution would look like after his death and resurrection. And finally, Jesus, of course, talked about the coming of the Son of Man. Yes, that the, the return of the Son of Man, that he would return. So these were three blocks of teaching, and they somehow, Luke 
or the gospel writers, um, maybe it was the so-called Q, who knows, edits these, this material together. That's Lindsay's theory. I think it's convincing. Um, but how much does it help us? Yes? Because when you talk about this subject, uh, especially uh, here in Jerusalem, uh, you have folks who think or believe these things are going to happen in the next five minutes. And then you have a bunch of other people who are very, they could be a little jaded, uh, somewhat skeptical, and even a bit agnostic, and uh, think to themselves, well, you know, we've had wars and earthquakes and signs in the heavens for 2,000 years, and Jesus isn't coming anytime soon, so I'll just get on with my life uh, and do the best I can and serve God and uh, be a follower, be the follower of Jesus. I would like to suggest that to both groups, both types, and for those of you in the middle, that um, this passage does have something to say to us. And uh, whether we think it's going to happen in the next three minutes or we think it's going to happen maybe in the next 3,000 years, Jesus has something to teach us as disciples and that we should listen to him and take it seriously. Okay, so what is the, maybe what is the first thing to, to consider is the destruction of the temple. Uh, Luke and his, uh, his uh, eschatological, his end time, uh, uh, his uh, end time recording of the uh, end time account of uh, the words of Jesus here places a lot of emphasis on the destruction of the temple. And Luke himself, or Luke's gospel, and the and the uh, and the book of Acts places a lot of emphasis on the temple. And contrary to popular opinion, it's a pretty positive report. It's not exactly what we have in Mark uh, or Luke. Luke's gospel starts in the temple. It ends in the temple. Yes, we have Anna, Simeon, righteous, a righteous man, a righteous woman. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. We have Mary coming to the temple in order to, uh, after her purification, to offer, uh, to offer sacrifice after the birth of Jesus. Um, we have Jesus coming to the temple every year during Passover. So he's a family that shows great <clears throat> devotion and piety uh, to the temple itself. Of course, Jesus um, teaches in the temple. Um, later in the book of Acts, Paul, John, uh, the Holy Spirit falls. Very many people suggest e- either close to the Temple Mount or, or on the Temple Mount, the early church prays in the temple. John and Paul have their regular, go for a regular tur- liturgical prayer in the temple. Uh, Paul later says, I, I don't have a critique. I don't have a complaint against the temple. Uh, and even Paul says that he, has, he himself has a revelation there. And yet, Jesus is predicting, perhaps, not, perhaps it's not the temple itself, which is the divine institution, but it's the people who run the temple and what they've turned it into. Jesus is, is pronouncing judgment. 
he's, he's pronouncing a warning. Uh, he wants Jerusalem to repent. He wants the Sadducees who run the temple. He wants, it, it's actually not just a prediction, but it's an invitation for repentance. But no repentance uh, comes from Jerusalem. Now, I think one thing to consider is that when Luke writes his gospel, he writes his gospel a long time after the temple is destroyed. Yes, could be 10, 20, even 30 years. Uh, someone called Luke, or maybe his name wasn't Luke, I don't know, collects this material and edits it together. And one of the important questions uh, for, for Luke and for uh, the sister book, Acts, is how did the Gentiles, how did the Gentiles get this incredible offer of eternal life? How is it that we Gentiles are being invited into this Jewish story? Yes. And one of the issues that Luke has to deal with and the gospel and the book of Acts Yes, is the gospel going from the Jewish world to the Gentile world. And what about all those covenant promises, all that language that talks about an eternal relationship between God and Israel? Yeah. Does that just disappear? Does that just go up and smoke? Did God who remains faithful to Israel all throughout uh, covenant history up until the time that we get to Jesus. Did God divorce his wife, Israel? You know, in the Old Testament, uh, Israel took many wives and lovers. Yes, but God only had one wife. God remained faithful even when his people did not remain faithful. And that's true today of the church, just as it was true of Israel then. So people ask the question, now we've been adopted or we've been grafted in or we've become a part of the commonwealth of Israel, maybe God is going to do to us what he did to them. He seems capricious. How can we trust him? How can we trust him? But one of the things that I think we all can and should take away from from this is that God himself is in control of history and that God himself works in the midst of sinful Jews and sinful Gentiles. And that God has a way, yes, of bringing an end to history. And God is not uh, forgetful of the covenant that he made with the Jewish people. Because at the end of this chapter, we didn't read it, but at the end of this chapter, there's a, just a hint, uh, maybe not even a hint, there's just, there's just a line that's almost a throwaway line. And it tells us the following. It says that... Um, It says, uh, it's not quite at the end of the, it's not quite at the end of the chapter, 
But it says, uh, how dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers, talking about the fall of Jerusalem. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Wow, you would think that's the end of the story. But Jesus continues until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Meaning that God has said yes, that he's opened uh, a relationship with the Gentiles, but at a certain time, yeah, God will remember his promises and his covenants to the Jewish people, and they will be restored to him, and all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. We don't know when that time is. Some people are convinced we live in those days. Some people believe that uh, uh, the time is now. It's not certain. But here again, it's a reminder, not just a reminder. It tells us very, uh, in a very, very, in very strong language, just who God is. That God isn't up there as he's not. Did you ever see the Wizard of Oz? Maybe some of you did. You know, the, the Wizard of Oz, he's the man who, who sits behind a machine and causes all kinds of trouble in the world and thunder and lightning and smoke, etc., etc. Now, God isn't someone who's up there who's somehow angry at the world and somehow bringing judgment upon us, but that God's character even when he does bring judgment, is that he is faithful and he is one that keeps his promises. And we can see it, especially in the history of the church. We can also see it in the history of the Jewish people. And many times people come and they want to destroy the Jewish people. They want to wipe them out. And uh, as it says in the Passover Haggadah, God saves them not for their sake, but for his sake. And how does he save them? I can assure you, whether it's Pharaoh or Haman or even a Hitler, it's not the Israel Air Force that saves his people. Or it's not all those Jewish Nobel Prize winners. Um, Or it's not Jewish lawyers in New York, but it's God himself who always saves his people. Yes, so God is faithful. And if God has kept the old covenant, yes, and it's not been easy, there's been a lot of suffering. Yes, if God has kept his promises to Israel, how much more will he keep the promises he makes to us in Jesus Christ? Because in Hebrews, we have this idea that it's a better covenant. So if God has been faithful to the old covenant, how much more will he be faithful to the new covenant? So in all this talk about wars and suffering and judgment, we have to first and foremost see God and see God who's someone who's faithful. Does God cause all this or does he allow us to somehow, as human beings, sinful Jews, sinful Gentiles, to reap what we sow? And that's a mystery. We can't solve that mystery. But we know that God is faithful. And not only is God, God faithful, he says in the passage that we just read, he says, look, 
There are certain promises that I have for you in, in the midst of suffering. And those promises, um, uh, those promises include that when you're persecuted, when we are persecuted, that when we're uh, put on trial or that when we have to give an account of our faith. And this, I believe, is not just in the end days or uh, at the end of the world. Uh, this, is, this is a promise, I think, that's good all through history, that he will give us the words that we can, to, to, to um, uh, he will give us the words to testify, or he'll give us the words that uh, we can defend ourselves with. And we don't have to practice or rehearse something. We don't have to give people some pat answer that actually he will open our mouths and speak through us. And again, what does that say to us? Again, even in trouble or persecution, that God is faithful and that God will supply for us um, in the midst <laughs> in the midst of trouble. Um, Secondly, you know, God promises us in the passage that we, the, the passage that we just read, that he will be with us. Not, not only will he be with us, but that um, at the end of the day, whether we pass through the persecution or we are um, persecuted or even martyred, that not a hair on our head will perish. Not a head on our head will perish. I like what we will say in the liturgy and, and at the end of the service. And the liturgy sums it up much better than a sermon because it's very concise and it's to the point. It says, O God of our fathers, before whose face the generations pass away, we thank you that in you we are kept safe forever. That we are kept safe forever. Yes, as Paul says in Romans 8, whether it's trials or persecution or hunger or famine, whether it's the sword or nuclear weapon, yes, we are kept safe forever. And that ultimately, nobody can take our lives from us. And nobody can take eternal life from us. That's a promise that God gives us. Again, uh, it's a promise of, uh, of God saying that uh, he, will, um, he will provide for us. Okay. And then finally, that God says that... Uh, another promise that he gives us, that if we can be, um, if we can endure, whether it's difficulties uh, or any, we can endure any difficulties, we can endure uh, any oppression, we can uh, severe uh, through trials or tribulations, yes, that, um, we will, um, let me read them, because I like what, how it's read in the, in the NIV. Jesus says in verse 19, it says, um, 
which says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, we will gain life. By standing firm. Again, it's another promise that God gives us. Yes? So we could be facing a financial crash, another depression. Yes, we could... The world monetary system will one day collapse. Wars, rumors of wars, one ethnic group rising up against another ethnic group because that's what it means when it's nation against nation. It's not necessarily France against Germany, but it's more likely um, an ethnic group against another ethnic group. Yes, Jews against Arabs, Persians against Arabs, whatever. That no matter what happens to us, yes, if we endure, if we persevere, if we remain faithful. Now, what does it mean to remain faithful? And we'll come back to this in just a moment and close. There's also Jesus, he gives us promises and assurances. And again, these are good for whatever situation we find ourselves in, Uh, whether it's a war or whether it's cancer, whether it's the collapse of the stock market or it's personal bankruptcy. But Jesus also says two things before he gives these promises. He says, first of all, don't be deceived. So when it comes to teaching and talk about the second coming, there is more weird and whippy and crazy stuff and false teaching and perhaps touching any other issue, perhaps with the exception of the nature of of Jesus himself and the Trinity. And many false prophets have come over the generations, yes, over the centuries, and have talked about the end times, the end is going to be like this, and the end is going to be like that, and it's going to be this scenario, and it's going to happen on this date. Well, Jesus doesn't even know when it's going to happen. And yet, year after year, many of these same people, they make predictions, prediction after prediction, that virtually never come true. And they're like Teflon. No one ever holds them responsible. No one ever holds them accountable. Yes, for all the predictions and anxiety that they cause people. So Jesus says, first of all, whether we're talking about the days days ahead, which may not be the end of the world or the second coming of Jesus, but we do live in serious and even dangerous times. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't Don't be deceived. Don't listen to the wrong voice. Yes, sometimes we listen to the voice that comes from inside us. Our friend Sarah Lanier calls it self-talk. And that voice is sometimes broken uh, because we ourselves are broken or sinful. And uh, that voice tells us things about ourselves or about others and even about the Lord, about the Lord Jesus, which are not true. Or sometimes, uh, in fact, all the time, we're listening to the voice of our culture. We're listening to the spirit of the age. And uh, we have to reject um, that, that voice. 
And other times we listen to uh, the voice of our, our friends or associates instead of listening to the voice of the Lord, listening to the voice of Scripture, or listening to godly counsel. We can be so easily deceived in these matters. We can be so easily deceived about many things. But Jesus says, don't be deceived. And second, he, he goes on in verse 9, don't be frightened. Do not be frightened about the future. Yeah, the future can be frightening. Our personal future can be rosy and wonderful, but also uh, the days in which we live are very sobering. We live at a time uh, of uh, great technological advancement and at the same time of uh, equally great uh, moral decline. We live at a time when some nations, especially in the West, are in decline, and other nations, such as China, is becoming more powerful. And whenever nations go up or nations go down, uh, very often there's a war or many wars uh, until a new world order uh, is established. And again, this war causes uh, enormous suffering. But if we can remember God's faithfulness, yes, we do not have to be afraid of the future, that we can trust in him. And instead of preparing ourselves, um, like many people do in the United States, you know, they go to rural areas and they build themselves bomb shelters and they um, store up food for several years and uh, they're called preppers, yes, as you may well know. Instead of preparing like that, we can prepare ourselves spiritually for whatever may happen to us in the future. And the way that we persevere and the way that we make that spiritual preparation is to keep in mind that when Jesus talks about being faithful, when he talks about endurance, when he talks about persistence, Okay, and not compromising and not giving up, no matter what age in which we live, that we don't have to do it ourselves. We don't have to be stoics and say, no matter what, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to let them uh, push me around. I'm going to remain a firm and faithful Christian. Yes, I'd like to remind you as we close that Faith is a gift because oftentimes in the New Testament it talks about faith. It talks about faithfulness. Yes, and faithfulness is another word for persistence. It's another word for preservation. Sorry, perseverance, not preservation. And our passage is from Romans 5. And Romans 5 says the following. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the peace that one needs to face the future, right, comes out of a relationship with the Lord himself, okay? Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we, and we rejoice in the hope 
of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Yes? What does it say in Ephesians? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Yes? It's a person, not just the force, not just the thing. Yes? That um, life can be difficult. Uh, Personally, life... uh, the, the national or international situation in which we live uh, is not very cheerful. I don't know if this is the coming of the Lord or the end of the world, but it doesn't matter. We need to take, we need to remember uh, those things that we learned in this chapter, that in the midst of all circumstances, God is faithful. God warns us not to be deceived he warns us not to be, encourages us not to be frightened. And he makes promises for our provision. And that, uh, again, he will never leave us uh, or forsake us. And those are the promises that uh, surely we can stake our lives on. Throughout the centuries, yeah, millions of Christians, literally, have given up their lives, yes, based on those promises. I think those of you who were here a few weeks ago, we pointed out the icon here that's on my right and your left. This is an icon from the Church of Egypt. Yes, when it was five or six years ago, when 20 Christians and one, and one Muslim who joined them at the last minute, 21 people from, 20 from Egypt, one from Ghana, were murdered by ISIS martyred by ISIS in Libya. And uh, I think this icon is very beautiful because it reminds us that even though they lost their lives physically because of their witness and their refusal to compromise, that today they're with the Lord. Yes. That they're with the Lord. And let me finish by saying, it says, we thank you that in you we are kept safe forever. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.